has your primary care doctor ever asked you about your sleep? If you're like most people, probably not. Today's podcast covers an important but underrated discussion about what work is actually being done to develop better sleep disorder assessments for primary care doctors and screening tools so that more people get accurate diagnosis and treatment sooner. Today's guests include Dr. Dennis Wong, a pulmonologist and primary investigator for a sleep vital signs study at Kaiser Permanente's Sleep Medicine and Department of Research and Evaluation. We also have Dr. Michael Perlis, an associate professor of psychiatry and an associate professor of nursing and the director of behavioral sleep medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Last, we'll hear from Dr. Andrew Phillip, who is a clinical health psychologist and a leader working on healthcare transformation initiatives. He's passionate about integrating care to better address patient and provider needs and enhancing care for underserved and often undervalued populations. Welcome to Project Sleep's podcast. Project Sleep is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to raising awareness and advocating for sleep health, sleep equity, and sleep disorders. I'm your host, Julie Flygar. We're so glad you're here as we work together towards making sleep cool. On this podcast, all guests express their own opinions. While medical diagnoses and treatment options are discussed for educational purposes, this information should not be taken as medical advice. Each person's experience is so unique, which is why it's so important to always consult your own medical team when making decisions about your own health. If you haven't done so yet, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss a Project Sleep podcast episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a rating or review wherever you listen so that we can reach more listeners and raise more awareness. The Sleep Insight series invites listeners to learn about this amazing adventure we take every night called sleep. Through these insightful discussions, we examine sleep and our society's beliefs about sleep from a variety of angles. We hope you'll learn some cool new facts and analogies that you can use to help us raise awareness about this underappreciated one-third of our lives. First, thanks for, for the invitation. I, I actually feel pretty blessed to be working in a health system in which there is the flexibility of being able to, you know, make diagnoses, even if the numbers don't completely fit, even, you know, providing empiric treatment for you know, diagnoses, you know, for somebody who, you know, I believe either has narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia and so forth. So, you know, these, a lot of these patients really need some, you know, immediate relief. And, you know, for a college student, you know, who has finals and, and so forth, you know, even delaying a couple of months can very much be problematic. Part of that flexibility also includes the ability to introduce fun little projects. You know, I, I think we kind of describe this project as maybe kind of like a little fun, cute little project where we introduced a sleep battle sign based on a simple two-question survey for utilization in a primary care clinic. As a little bit of background, we developed a sleep battle sign, two questions, with the goal of improving the recognition of patients with potential sleep disorders and to eventually track a longitudinal sleep-related outcomes. Here are the two questions. Question one, or sleep battle sign one, is how many days a week are you not satisfied with your sleep? And, and question number two is how many days a week is sleepiness a problem, both of which are scored on a scale of zero to seven. The idea here is that one question is more uh, targeted towards sleep disruption and the sleep experience, and the other question is more targeted towards consequences of uh, poor sleep, uh, namely sleepiness. Study aims, the first of which was to 
essentially do a, something exploratory and see whether the sleep vital sign actually matched scores of other standardized or standard validated sleep surveys, namely the stopping, which is a screening tool for obstructive sleep apnea, the insomnia severity index as a measurement for insomnia severity, the upward sleepiness scale as a reflection of sleepiness, and the FOSQ10 as a measurement of general sleep quality. Next, we wanted to evaluate the utility of the sleep vital sign in identifying patients with potential sleep disorders as a screening tool in the primary care setting. So we had, you know, give or take about a thousand patients and, you know, I'll highlight some of the differences actually between men and women. Women tended to have a higher sleep vital sign one, which is a reflection of more sleep disruption or poor sleep experience. And their sleep latency was quite a bit higher, you know, give or take about 50 minutes as opposed to 30 minutes. Men, on the other hand, drink more caffeine and as ex expected, the, the next size of the stopping scores were higher as well. So first, we wanted to take a look to see whether the sleep vital sign had a similar pattern and with an upward sleepiness score. And what you can see here for both vital sign one and for vital sign two, as the sleep vital sign score increases, the upward score increases as well. And so that, we found that that was a statistically significant pattern or relationship uh, that we identified. Same thing for the insomnia severity index. In fact, the, the pattern is probably a bit more pronounced. Same thing for the FOSQ10 for both the sleep vital sign one and sleep vital sign two. Um, and also for the stopping, at least as it related to sleep vital sign two, which is the question related to sleepiness. So overall, what we found, you know, we felt pretty confident that the sleep vital sign was measuring what we expected to measure, being able to identify potential sleep disorders and sleep symptoms in people who uh, truly are having some trouble with their sleep. So in regards to the, the part of the project as it relates to the implementation in a primary care setting as a screening tool, this was the protocol that we used. Step number one, the medical assistant would collect the sleep battle sign in addition to the blood pressure, heart rate, et cetera. Step number two, if either the sleep battle sign one or two was at least four, meaning that they had problems uh, at least four days or, or at least half the week, then we would proceed to step number three. Step number three, the medical assistant would provide an expanded questionnaire. A lot of what we were trying to do was to really simplify the process for the primary care clinic and the primary care physician. We know that the primary care clinics are overwhelmed. They have a lot of responsibility. A physician has five, 10, you know, maybe 20 minutes to assess a, a patient and then to manage them. Um, and so we really wanted to streamline this for the primary care physician. And so the expanded questionnaire and the algorithm there is a series of seven questions that, that are asked to the patient as it relates to whether they snore, whether they have problems falling asleep or staying asleep, whether they feel like they're not getting enough sleep, are they shift workers, do they have restless legs, and do they take any medications for sleep or for depression, and whether they doze off regularly in a way that impacts their ability to function during the daytime. Whether they answer yes or no to these seven questions, the primary care physician can follow this algorithmic tree to a recommendation uh, or various recommendations. For example, you know, should the patient be referred to sleep medicine for a possible sleep disorder breathing or for insomnia or for hypersomnia evaluation for a patient who we think might be at risk for narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia. So we really tried to implement this as a way of truly simplifying this for the primary care physicians, our results. 
half the patients were randomized to the sleep battle sign pathway. And you can see that 18% of them were identified to have a potential sleep disorder and referred to sleep medicine versus only 2% of the patients that were randomized to usual care. What we also found is a really a, a critical result here is that of the 83 uh, patients that were identified to have a potential sleep disorder and referred to sleep medicine, only 19 of them actually showed up to their sleep medicine um, you know, appointment. And so you know, one of our key conclusions you know, from this study is that an effective screening tool cannot be limited to just identifying patients. Uh, who have a potential sleep disorder, it has to be partnered with some type of engagement strategy, you know, for the patient to really understand and to become engaged with following up with their sleep evaluation. In conclusion, first, we successfully implemented a novel sleep battle sign, a two-question survey uh, in the primary care clinics. Uh, number two, we are applying the sleep battle sign increased the rate of identifying potential sleep disorders and increased uh, the referral rate to sleep medicine clinics. Uh, number three, however, most patients did not keep their sleep clinic appointments, indicating that engaging patients and not merely identifying patients is critical for successful sleep disorder screening strategies. Thank you for the invitation, Julie. So we'll start with the premise that sleep health matters. I think we're preaching to the converted here. But sometimes I think we, we lose perspective a little bit in that how much poor sleep is related to poor psychiatric and medical health. Poor sleep generally defined is related to a host of medical and psychiatric disorders from heart disease to obesity to diabetes to PTSD to depression. And depression is where this linkage in my mind is perhaps the strongest and I think that there's clear and convincing data now that it is a very much a reciprocal relationship. But I won't be surprised down the line to find out that many of these health sleep links are more reciprocal than unidirectional. So sleep health matters. What's the problem? Problem is sleep health is generally not a focus for primary care. So why isn't it? First is patients may not view sleep disorders as consequential. Patients often don't report their sleep concerns. I call this the don't ask, don't tell policy. Patients often view their sleep concerns as secondary. And this one is perhaps our biggest stumbling block because we have promoted this concept even at, within the sleep community for generations. So this is a big one of many problems. Clinicians often don't have training in sleep disorders. Clinicians don't have an efficient way to assess for sleep disorders that fits with the workflow. Clinicians may not view assessment or treatment of sleep disorders as essential for care. Clinicians often have the view that sleep concerns are secondary. So this is true of patients. It's also true of clinicians. And finally, even if all of this wasn't a problem, clinicians may not have clear pathways for treatment or for referral. So what's a potential solution? A brief, comprehensive sleep disorder screener. How brief is brief? Two is pretty brief. Plus seven, nine is pretty brief. So I think that that was a very good start. Again, I'll emphasize that ours was a bit different. 
But back in the day in 2016, Dr. Karen Klingman decided to have a systematic look at what was available at the time. And what she found was published in this study. And it's basically as follows. But the problem we identified in that effort was that none of the existing screeners are or were brief and are or were comprehensive. The list of the questionnaires that purport to be global screeners. And what you'll see is some are short, like 11 questions. Some are not short, like 175 questions. But what all of them have in common is none of them tap more than six sleep disorders, and most don't do that. So there's a real question about how comprehensive these things are. So arguably, what we want is something, as I said, brief and comprehensive. And when I say comprehensive, the goal is to concurrently assess all 13 sleep disorders. We can argue about are there 11 sleep disorders or are there 15? Is this representation not fair because you collapsed RLS with PLMs? Is it not fair because you have two levels of not otherwise specified disorders for pathological sleepiness? Shouldn't it be 11? Maybe. Should it be 15? Maybe. Somewhere around 13 disorders is what we want to comprehensively assess. So a potential solution was not really made for this in the first place. Potential solution came from our need to have a rapid screener for research purposes. What we wanted to stop doing was having one or two hour phone calls with each subject that volunteered for a study to comprehensively assess whether they met the inclusion and not the exclusion criteria for our study. So originally the SDSCL, the Sleep Disorders Checklist 25, was made for research to be a rapid screener. And it really worked well. And that's for me, was the end of it. But thanks to Karen Klingman and Carla Youngquist, they kept saying, let me show this to a few clinicians. Let's see what they think of this. And more and more, we found that people wanted copies, that this is a really good device. It's very quick, very comprehensive. It was tweaked over the years. At the top is some header information about age, sex, height, weight, work shift, whether what the total sleep time is, what the time in bed is, the 25 symptom questions, and then they're scaled from zero to four on a frequency slash intensity basis from zero never to four, which is greater than five times a week that I have this symptom. It takes three to five minutes to complete. Frankly, it could be done in one or two minutes. Modal is three. It taps, as we said before, all 13 sleep disorders. Interpretation is easy peasy. The last two columns represent greater than three days a week symptomatic for each of these items. And so if you wish to follow up, to assess, to diagnose, or to refer, these are the areas you're going to focus on. Um, once they've completed the survey, there's a pop-up, and it tells people how to access informational resources through the NSF or through the American Academy. It tells them how to find a sleep disorder center. And if they're looking for providers in their city and their state, it links them to provider directories. This also is sent if they choose to have it sent to them by an email. 
So what are the next steps? We are pushing forward with something we call the Sleep Health Screener Project. The goal is to collaborate with industry sponsors to create a public-facing, open-access website and a phone app where the screener can be taken online anytime, the completed questionnaire can be saved, the report can be downloaded, the results are emailable, and access to provider information is given. So that's where we're at. Thank you so much. This is just so fantastic to see all the work that's been done in this area. Have you guys been able to track at all the follow-up of, of people, similar to what Dr. Huang was talking about, whether people are actually following up with sleep appointments? or We have done several studies in hundreds, if not thousands at this point. Some studies are more interested in symptom profiles across a given disorder like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. In terms of, does it work? That's the critical question. If we put this out in the internet, will people hit on it? Yes, we're fairly certain of that. If you just Google, why can't I? The most universal reply is sleep. And if the first link is us, they'll have the opportunity to screen. Now, I happen to think when patients seek information, they're more likely to act as opposed to in the primary care office, they're handed, let's say, a tablet, here, take this, they may be less likely to act. So when people are in help-seeking mode and they're going online to look for what the hell is wrong with my sleep, my hope is they will take hold of those recommendations, those referrals that we're giving. But that's an empirical question. But I also think it is a question that we can address once we have it up and live. And, you know, even if it's not perfect, it's a damn sight better than what we have now. What we have now is don't ask, don't tell. If you do tell, people drill down on specific sleep disorders and ignore the rest. We don't want that to happen anymore. We want there to be an opportunity for all of the sleep symptoms to be assessed concurrently so that we can get the big picture. Maybe it's not just idiopathic sleepiness. Maybe the person also has nightmares and bruxism, which is, by the way, likely. So we're hopeful. We've done an awful lot of work to get this to where it is. Where it needs to go is industry support to put a beautiful version up for free for everybody, and then to hope that we're giving back the information in ways that they'll make good use of. Dr. Andrew Phillip, so excited to hear you speak. Great. Uh, thanks, Julie. I have to admit, as I've been sitting here listening to these fascinating discussions, I'm wondering, have I been set up? Uh, these are the exact kinds of things I'm wondering about and asking about. And so, in fact, to hear so many good answers uh, is very encouraging. Uh, you know, as you'll, as you'll hear, I'm not necessarily a sleep expert and, and neither is our organization, but it's kind of an area that we've stumbled into and I see great potential. And so it's exciting to get to come to these kinds of forums and explore a little bit. So a little bit about PCDC or Primary Care Development Corporation. Um, we're a national nonprofit. Uh, we're based here in New York, but we were founded in the, in the 1990s really to address a fundamental need around health equity. Um, there was a recognition in New York City that primary care 
you know, as sort of a fundamental foundational entry point to services for good health is not equally accessible, um, especially in underserved, disinvested communities in New York and all over the country. And so we were founded to change that, to invest capital, to actually build up the primary care infrastructure, to provide uh, training and technical assistance, to actually enhance the delivery of quality primary care, which includes behavioral health, includes things like basic sleep health, um, sexual and reproductive health, and others, and to sort of transform the system through advocacy and also supporting research that really enhances equitable, accessible, high-quality primary care. And kind of stemming from our, our days in the early 90s in New York to now nationally, we've done a pretty good job, I think. We've worked with thousands of healthcare organizations, public health departments, and others all over the country. We've invested now over actually just recently $1.3 billion into the primary care system, particularly in underserved communities, and really built the capacity of the primary care system to grow visits. How do we make primary care better? How do we make it more accessible? And certainly sleep has become part of this. But I'll give you a couple examples of the kinds of things we do. One aspect that actually touches sleep quite intimately is trauma and adverse childhood experiences. We know that traumatic experiences, including things like discrimination and racism, they carry with folks through their experiences and certainly through their health and even their sleep. So some of the work that we do, for example, where we sort of connect the dots is we invest in innovative um, primary care models. For example, health centers, one Henry J. Austin, who was sort of able to use our capital to um, basically rebuild and restructure their facility to be safer and more welcoming to patients from all walks of life. While we did that, though, we also helped with consultation on how to design that space. We work in states like California to work on large uh, statewide screening projects around childhood trauma and adverse childhood experiences and really implement that at scale in primary care. And I think that's part of um, what I'm going to sort of connect to sleep here. We do this with integrated care, physical and behavioral health integration and others, but I'm just going to jump into it around sleep. So we sort of got to this place about a year and a half ago as part of our federal, um, actually a subcontract we have through uh, the federal government, the National Council for Behavioral Health, and specifically through SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. We do projects around integrated care, learning series for healthcare providers and, and um, stakeholders around sort of how to innovate to really bring together the head and the body and treat them within the same place within primary care. And so this past year, we offered this year-long series on sleep health, really identifying this as a core opportunity where there's an intersection between behavioral health or even mental health and physical health, uh, as much of the presenters here have been speaking about today. And we, um, I think we were pretty successful. We engaged over 2,000 audience members from all around the country, including um, policymakers, researchers, clinicians, and leaders, and really across all sides of the spectrum from um, sleep medical specialists to behavioral health folks, uh, students, and others. And our series spanned a number of topics. So we, we talked about addressing sleep and, and acknowledging sleep disparities in places like health centers. We actually had a few NIH-funded researchers come on and talk about some of the research you heard today in terms of uh, disparities and how that impacts sleep, but also how sleep can then impact the outcomes of experiencing things like discrimination, which is fascinating. We talked about sort of clinically, how do you address sleep? How do you assess for it? How do you intervene um, both on a behavioral and, and a medical component? And I think importantly, and, and as you've done here today, we had sessions that were really dedicated to hearing the perspectives of patients, children, adults, 
family members, people with lived experience who've gone through the process that I think uh, Farah really nicely outlined today of what the sort of journey is to, to really get care for sleep. And then sort of this, this final discussion on uh, actually about us as healthcare providers uh, and, and what about us and all of this. And, you know, I'll just sort of share this quote from Eugenia, one of our presenters, a sleep advocate herself, and someone who shared her personal healthcare journey, saying, um, you know, professionals really just don't ask, they don't talk about sleep. They'll ask you about all these other things. She lists out here vision, how your body pain is. But she said, you know, it needs to be on the radar. If our medical professionals aren't asking about it, how do they expect us to feel and really know to worry about it? And so she's really, you know, saying, I think the words that we're all saying, which is, especially in primary care, if it's not being asked about, you know, that's quite a problem. So, you know, I think Dr. Prillis really laid this out nicely, right? So what's the problem in primary care? It's all the things he just outlined. I totally agree. Um, it's, it's sort of the patient awareness. It's the provider time and, and sort of awareness, um, having those pathways. And to Dr. Huang's point, also the engagement. Primary care is a central access point for all care, for behavioral health, for physical health, and, and even for sleep health. But, you know, as you already know, visits are short. 20 minutes is probably the highest number I've seen. And a lot of that is often actually eaten up by interacting with the electronic medical record and things other than sort of the patient's needs. And in fact, and this might get to the policy piece a little bit, although we here are talking a lot about primary care and the great opportunities of primary care, primary care is essentially the least reimbursed healthcare service we've got of the major sort of access points. We're talking about pennies on the dollar of our national healthcare spend goes to supporting primary care just 5 to 7% um, versus sort of the behemoth, which is like hospital-based care and, and other forms of care, um, things that sort of happen later in kind of clinically speaking, like a disease process, right? Um, this is sort of not an emphasis on prevention and early intervention and sort of emphasizing good health. So that's already a problem, right? So, so there's not a whole lot of resources in primary care, despite the fact that conveniently a lot of us are talking about it. Also, there are a lot of demands in primary care on the providers and, and providers, including the whole team. The U.S. Um, Preventive Services Task Force, the U.S. SPSTF, they sort of outline, you know, gold standards and what kinds of things you should be asking for and screening for. And, you know, we're often disappointing them because we're only screening for, for like less than half of all those things they want to be screening for. In primary care, we are an ecosystem of testing and of innovation. There's always new screeners. There's a colorectal cancer screening. There's breast cancer screening. There's depression screening, suicide screening. There is a screening for diabetes, um, different levels of diabetes based on the types of uh, medications you take and your diagnoses, cholesterol, a whole number of other things. And these are all sort of required. And then we see an influence of payment. And so in fact, the things that we ask questions about, the things that we screen for practically when you go into a, a primary care office they're certainly influenced by best practice, but they're heavily influenced by what is required and what is paid for. And that is a really important distinction, I think, to make. So with that all in mind, PCPs tend not to really ask these questions very much as a reality, but like less than, less than half the amount of time, for example, that they may ask about exercise or, or someone's diet, which are important, but as we see here, sleep is very important. And we have patients who, again, are asking about this. So what do we do? I thought uh, Dr. Huang's uh, presentation on, on these two sort of questions, I'm like, yes, this is actually what, we, what we've been asking for and what I've been asking for. And so, in fact, Julie and I got set up actually through a, a meeting that was originally put on by, by Dr. Mishka Brown um, at the NIH because this question came up. And actually, I asked Dr. Brown this question a few months ago, coincidentally, of, 
what is one key question that we can ask about sleep health and primary care? Because we have only a few minutes. We have little to you know, very little reimbursement and sort of money to play around with. And we have very pressed patients and providers who don't always appreciate the importance of sleep. But I do think, and sort of our, in primary care, there's a good sort of understanding that a sort of core question or key question, or maybe two questions is very important. Um, Julie, you put out a paper on this as well, where you laid out two questions. In my conversation with Dr. Brown, she suggested perhaps asking about excessive daytime sleepiness may be a good core question. And so it's encouraging to see that there's so much research attention being paid to this. However, I will say um, this is not yet widely heard about or known in primary care. And when I say primary care, I'm also talking about not only large health systems, but also small um, solo practices or group practices. In fact, in places like California, which I'll talk about in a moment, a great deal of um, particularly underserved and vulnerable communities, they really rely on small practices, sometimes single provider practices to understand the needs of their community and to get care. And they're often sort of the last ones to kind of catch up um, because they just don't have the luxury of, of participating in even wonderful forums like this all the time. But one thing that really encourages me and made me think is, you know, I mentioned earlier ACEs Aware. This is a California-based initiative funded by the Office of the Surgeon General and through their Medicaid funding, Medi-Cal in California. And they took this issue of ACEs, which is adverse childhood experience. This is essentially stuff like um, um, having a parent who is incarcerated, um, spending a night as a child, not knowing where your next meal may come from, um, not having access to things you need, that kind of stuff. It turns out the more of these things you're exposed to as a child, the more barriers and challenges you're going to have in achieving and enjoying good health, among other things. Californians acknowledge this. And similarly, they said, well, nobody's screening for this. Nobody's asking about these things. And so it's hard to do anything about it. What they did, however, is two things. They took um, a whole bunch of money, like billions of dollars, and decided we are going to get behind screening and primary care for adverse childhood experiences on things, including childhood trauma. And we are going to, one, create a statewide initiatives to train healthcare providers um, how to screen for, how to ask for uh, questions around uh, adverse childhood experiences. And two, we're going to tie a special reimbursement incentive. We're going to pay providers per screener to incent them, incentivize them to ask these core questions. And then we're also going to support them in thinking about engagement and follow through some of the points I brought up earlier. Basically, um, they've had a many-fold increase now in screening in the state around ACEs, these adverse childhood experiences. And this is just in the span of less than a year since this initiative was started. And what this tells me, and this is not a one-to-one -one comparison, and there's definitely flaws in how this has been rolled out, and there's problems still, but it makes me think that if we can sort of get the right partnerships together, if we can get a reimbursement um, perspective and tied into this, if we can get academic perspectives to sort of let us know what these key questions are, and we can get the right sort of um, industry standards, as others have mentioned, we might actually be able to make some progress here to the points that everyone's making. So, you know, our plans are to make these connections. You know, we, we um, you know, we're sort of one of many voices of primary care, but there's these practical issues that we need to sort of wade through. And I think a big part of it is really acknowledging um, the need for, for proper reimbursement and regulation. And that's kind of you know, what my sort of call to action will be is as we sort of engage in, in sort of the translation of this, we talk about translational research and how do we get information from researchers through um, clinicians in the community, but also how do we get that connected at a policy level? How do we get the conversations going, which I'm very interested in with health plans, with Medicare, Medicaid, and others 
to make sure that there's some bite behind sort of the bark of um, we need to do the screening because we have to make it practical and we have to acknowledge all of the other things that are going on in primary care. But I'm very excited and very encouraged by this discussion. You can view our whole series. It's free. It's, it's online at pcdc.org sleep. You can also find my discussion with Dr. Brown and others around sleep. And uh, we'd love to have partners in this work. And I think we have some here. Thank you so much. I think this is just such an important piece of the puzzle that was missing for me for a long time in understanding, you know, one of the things you said, the things we screen for are heavily influenced by what's required and paid for. And that discussion of getting the reimbursement and the payers thinking about this and possibly following a model like ACE is aware, it just really gets me excited. All right, guys. Thank you. The Project Sleep Podcast is produced by Carver Sound Productions. For more information on podcast production services, visit carversoundproductions.com.